Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 21, 1 Kings chapters 11 and 12. Well, after our detour last week, to take a good look at these three societal platforms it forms the basis for virtually every known culture with the revelation that this shame-honor culture is the same one that we see the most prevalent in the Bible. Let's return now to 1 Kings 11 and start with verse 14. Let me also mention that beginning with Mount Sinai, the guilt innocence societal platform was introduced into Israel by means of the law. However, the extent of its influence upon Hebrew society society varied greatly over time. It wasn't uniform among the tribes. So let's reread a portion of 1 Kings 11 to get grounded for today's lesson. 1 Kings chapter 11. And we're going to begin in verse 14. We'll go through to the end. Then Adonai raised up an adversary against Shlomo, Hadad the Edomite, of the royal line of Edom. And back when David had been in Edom, and Yoav, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the dead, having killed every male in Edom, for Joab and all Israel had stayed there six months until he had eliminated every male in Edom, Hadad had fled. He and a number of Edomite servants of his father's with him, and he'd gone to Egypt. At the time, Hadad had been but a small boy, and on their way, they passed through Midian, arrived in Paran, took with them men from Paran, and went on to Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He gave Hadad a house. He saw to it that he had food. He gave him land. Hadad became a great favorite of Pharaoh so that he gave him his own wife's sister in marriage, that is, the sister Tehachpaneses, the queen. The sister of Tehachpaneses bore him Genuvat, his son, and Tehachpaneses bought him up in Pharaoh's own house, so that Genuvat was in Pharaoh's house along with Pharaoh's sons. And when Hadad in Egypt heard that David slept with his ancestors, and Joab, the commander of the army, was dead. Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me leave so that I can return to my own country. And Pharaoh asked him, But what have you lacked with me that makes you want just now to go to your own country? Nothing in particular, he replied, but let me leave in anyway. God raised up another adversary against Shlomo. Rizon, the son of el who had fled from his lord Hadadezer, king of Sovah, when David killed the, men who, uh, killed the men from Sovah. Rezon rallied men to himself. He became the leader of a band of marauders. They went to uh, Damascus and settled there while he became king of Damascus. He remained an adversary as long as Solomon lived causing difficulties in addition to those of Hadad. He detested Israel and he ruled Aram. <coughs> also, Yeruvam, uh, the son of Navat, 
an Ephrati from Zerudah, whose mother's name was Zeruah, one of Shlomo's servants, rebelled against the king. Here is the reason he rebelled against the king. Solomon was building the Milo and closing the breach in the wall of the city of David his father. Now this Jeroboam was a strong, energetic man. And Solomon, seeing how serious the young man was, made him supervisor over all the work being done by the tribe of Joseph. And once during this period, when Jeroboam had gone out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahiah from Shiloh spotted him traveling. Ahiah was wearing a new cloak, and the two of them were alone in open country. Ahiah took hold of his new cloak that he was wearing. He tore it into twelve pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces for yourself, for here is what Adonai, the God of Israel, says. I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I'm going to give ten tribes to you. But he will keep one tribe for the sake of my servant David, for the sake of Jerusalem, the city I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel. I will do this because they have abandoned me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonites, Kamosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon. They haven't lived according to my ways, so that they could do what was right in my view and obey my regulations and rulings, as did David his father. Nevertheless, I will not take the entire kingdom away from him, but I will make him prince as long as he lives, for the sake of David my servant, whom I chose, because he obeyed my commandments and my regulations. However, I will take the kingdom away from his son and give ten tribes of it to you. To his son I will give one tribe, so that David my servant will always have a light burning before me in Jerusalem, the city I chose for myself as the place to put my name. I will take you, and you will rule over everything you want. You will be king over Israel. Now if you will listen to all that I order you, live according to my ways, do what's right in my view, so that you observe my regulations and mitzvot, as David my servant did, then I will be with you. I will build you a lasting dynasty as I built for David. I will give Israel to you. For this offense I will trouble David's descendants, but not forever. Because of this, Shlomo tried to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam roused himself, fled to Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, stayed in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Other activities of Solomon, all he accomplished in his wisdom are recorded in the annals of Solomon. The length of Shlomo's reign in Jerusalem over all Israel was for 40 years. Then Shlomo slept with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam, his son, became king in his place. Well, as a brief review, Israel is in the process of being divided into two kingdoms. A man named Hadad was raised up by Jehovah to be an adversary against King Solomon as one of the steps along the way to punish the king for his idolatry by stripping him and his descendants of the right to rule the ten northern Israelite tribes. Hadad was an Edomite. He was of the royal family of Edom. And when Hadad was just a child, 
David and his army general Joab attacked and killed nearly all of the males of fighting age in Edom. This exploit was actually given slight mention back in 2 Samuel 8 because there we read uh, in uh, verses 13 and 14 it says David gained more fame on returning from killing 18,000 men from Aram in the Salt Valley. David stationed garrisons in Edom. He put garrisons throughout all of Edom. And all the people of Edom became subject to him. Adonai gave victory to David wherever he went. Now, Hadad's father and some of their servants fled. They stayed a while in Midian and in the Paran wilderness. And then they moved on to a more long-term sojourn in Egypt. Now, in Egypt, Hadad was greatly favored by the current pharaoh, Siamun, right, who was also a staunch ally of King Solomon. In fact, Siamun's daughter was wed to Solomon and it's clear in the previous chapters that this Egyptian wife of Solomon's held perhaps the highest place of all of Solomon's wives in some respects. And when King David died and Solomon began to rule Israel, Hadad decided to return to Edom after many years in Egypt. And while it's not stated, it is clear from Hadad's God-ordained purpose that he didn't return to Edom simply because he felt he could now be safe from persecution by King David. Rather, it was so he could raise some kind of an army and cause trouble for Israel and for Solomon. Well, a second antagonist against Solomon is spoken of beginning in verse 23. Rezon, son of el Now, Rezon was a royal servant to King Hadad-Azer. This person is of no relation to our first Hadad. Okay? And this was at a time when King David fought and defeated Hadadezer. And this event was also recorded in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 8, but in verses 3 through 8. I'll just read the first verse. David, on his way to establish his dominion as far as the Euphrates River, also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehov, king of Zobah. Now we're going to encounter this person, Rezon, again in chapter 15 but he's going to be going by a different name. Hezion. And the reason is that Rezon is not a formal name. It's a title. It's a title that means ruler. So Rezon apparently was fairly high up in King Hadadezer's royal court. Now, during this losing battle, against King David, Rizon escaped, he formed a band of thieves and mercenaries. And likely most of these men were warriors who fled from David along with Rizon. This band of marauders was powerful enough that they took over the city of Damascus and they settled there. Yep, Damascus, Syria. Damascus was under Solomon's rule. So when they took it over, it was a serious blow to King Solomon's reputation to his kingdom. There isn't any recorded serious attempt by Solomon to even take it back. Now verse 25 explains that between Hadad and Rezon, 
they bedeviled King Solomon all the way to his death. Neither man had the resources to take on Solomon and Israel head on. But since Rizon had a power base up in the north and uh, Hadad had one in the south, they could coordinate their efforts and inflict constant torment upon Israel's 12 tribes. This, of course, would then give calls, uh, give rise to calls from the, from the tribal leaders for Solomon to do something about it. But he was never able to effectively combat either man. Why? Because God protected them both. They were put there to be a thorn to Solomon, to destabilize his monarchy. Besides, Solomon was the opposite of his father David. As much as David was a fierce warrior who met fire with fire, Solomon was a peaceful diplomat. He preferred to negotiate and compromise and buy his way out of trouble. King Solomon inherited a kingdom that was won by his father by means of war. He had no aptitude or attitude that could deal with such men as Hadad and Rezan. Well, in verse 26, we're introduced to the third of the men that God raised up against Solomon. But this one is special. He would become far more than a mere troublemaker. He would become king over the ten northern tribes. This is the man who would rip away the northern part of Solomon's kingdom from him, or more accurately, rip it away from Solomon's son after Solomon's death. Now the man is named Yarovam. Alright, we know him better as Jeroboam. Okay. His name means something like may the kin, meaning God's people, increase. The complete Jewish Bible, as to several other versions, incorrectly say that he was an Ephrati from Sreda. Rather, it should say that he was an Ephraimite from Sreda. Now we're going to find a lot of confusion by Old Testament translators when they encounter the Hebrew word Eprati because indeed in certain context, context it can mean a person from the village of Ephrat but the word at times also indicates a person who's just well off however most usually it's simply a word that means a person from the tribe of Ephraim and that's the case here and since the only village named Ephrath that's recorded this far in the Bible is located in the territory of Judah, and we can be certain that Jeroboam wasn't a Judahite, he would not have been associated with that village of Ephrath. He was just a member of the northern tribes. Now Jeroboam's mother is interesting. It is said that she was a widow. The rabbis say that the reason a woman is even mentioned here as a means to establish Jeroboam's lineage is twofold. First, because Jeroboam's father died very early on and so his widowed mother raised him. Second, because the name recorded for his mother probably is not her real name. 
See, Zeruah comes from the root word Sarat. And it refers to skin disease. Okay. This Zaharat this, this is, is a skin disease usually wrongly translated in English as leprosy. It's not leprosy. But it's directly attributed to whoever has it, that person, as receiving a kind of punishment from God. It was a divinely directed means to expose an unclean soul by having it break out on their skin for all to see. In a shame-honor society, in a shame-honor society, it also meant that that person had lost their social status of honor and had fallen into shame from which there was no human remedy. This is one of the reasons that people with Zara'at were removed from society. That is, they were in a societal status condition of shame. They couldn't hide it. They couldn't fix it. And thus they were ostracized for it. So since Jeroboam was a rebel, and he tried to go against God's promise to Solomon that his kingdom would be not torn from him until after his death, Jeroboam's mother's name of Tseruah is meant as an epithet to communicate that Jeroboam was born from a mother of shame. Yeruvam gained his bad character and his unclean ways from his mother. That's the essence of this statement. It was in his DNA. He was destined to be this wicked man. Now remember, the context for the Bible is the Middle East. And so it's common in the Bible to see a cultural nickname used for a person that expresses a message that people from that era would easily understand. Now when verse 26 says that Jeroboam rebelled, in Hebrew it says he raised his yad, his hand, against Solomon. This means that his rebellion was that he reproached the king in public and he spoke against him in slanderous terms. The thing is this, in the Middle Eastern society that one man sought to dethrone a king and take over his kingdom from him, that wasn't a sign of bad character. In fact, it usually brought a measure of admiration for his boldness and his strength. However, to raise his hand against the king, this is different. It speaks of going about his efforts to take over the throne as being in a wicked way that ran against the grain of the traditions and the mindset of this shame-honor society. So it wasn't seen as admirable. Verse 28 says, Jeroboam was a gibor hayil, a mighty man, or a man of valor. In other words, he had a strong personality, he was a leader of men, he was quite bold and capable. 
So we learn that this term, Gibor Hayil, has nothing to do with character, only ability. This, thus unwittingly, Solomon saw this and gave him a position of power in his administration. He saw his ambition and his energy and he put Yehovah in charge of the forced labor. Labor is taxes, was Solomon's hallmark. And, but it was the forced labor that was due from the tribe of Joseph. In other words, from the two tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Now let me be clear. Jeroboam was not in charge of all forced labor, but only for a significant portion of it. Adoram, who was part of the inner circle, he was the one in charge of all forced labor, and Jeroboam would have reported to him. Well, back in verse 27, the passage begins by saying, this is the reason that Jeroboam rebelled. And then it goes on to explain that he was working on this massive project to rebuild that portion of the wall surrounding the city of David that's known as the Milo. Some interpreters say that it was the nature of the project that caused his rebellion. In that the reconstruction had to do with enlarging the quarters of Solomon's Egyptian wife at the expense of eliminating this large public square where pilgrims gathered on special religious occasions. Thus, this was terribly unfair on Solomon's part. And while they are historically correct about the intent of the construction, I I think that these Bible translators are reading something into the plain meaning of the text that just isn't there by assuming that there was something about this project, taking away this wonderful public square, that greatly offended Jeroboam. Rather, I see the intent of the author as merely painting a picture. An important event happened during the time frame that Jeroboam was working on this extensive project of reconstructing the Milo using forced labor from Ephraim and Manasseh. And for some project-related reason, it was necessary for him to travel outside of Jerusalem. And it was this set of circumstances that, by God's providence, caused Jeroboam to run into this prophet named Ahiah, who then went on to give him a message from the Lord. Well, Ahiah, meaning God, my brother, was from Shiloh. Shiloh was in the hill country of the tribal territory of Ephraim, which is logical, since Jeroboam was venturing back into his home tribal territory, no doubt in order to deal with some aspect of his assignment of forced labor from the Joseph tribes. Shiloh was the major priestly center for the twelve tribes during Samuel's day, up until its destruction by the Philistines. However, it was rebuilt. It was occupied again almost immediately. And for the northern tribes especially, it continued to hold this high religious significance, even though the tabernacle was long gone from there. Thus, it's no surprise 
that Jeroboam would heed the words of a prophet from Shiloh. Well, they were alone out in the field. The idea is they had to be alone for Ahiah to say what he did. Otherwise, he would have been reported to the king and treated as treasonous. The prophecy was that since Solomon had become an idolater, the Lord has decreed that his son would not have the opportunity to reign over all twelve tribes. And to symbolize this, a cloak was torn into twelve pieces or strips, and ten of them were handed over to Jeroboam. The idea was the twelve pieces represented the twelve tribes, and Jeroboam would rule over ten of those twelve. Now, there's been countless debates over whose cloak was torn. And there's never been a consensus among rabbis or among Christian commentators, but I don't think it matters. See, it's the newness of the cloak that matters. See, newness in the Bible is symbolic of a new thing being done. And in many contexts, that new thing is being divinely directed. We see Elisha went to Jericho where the people were saying that everything there was wonderful except that their water was so bad it was almost poisonous. He ordered them to bring him a new flask and with that he sweetened the water supernaturally. We know of the new wineskins metaphor in the New Testament that Yeshua pronounces in Matthew 9. So here in 1 Kings, we have a new cloak announcing that God is going to do a new thing after Solomon is deceased, and that new thing is to divide the kingdom of Israel. The prophet says that the Lord has determined that ten tribes are going to be taken from the Davidic dynasty, essentially. However, out of kindness for David... And because the Lord has placed his name over Yerushalayim, one tribe shall remain under Solomon's son's rule. It doesn't take a mathematician to add 10 and 1 and come up with 11. But what about the 12th tribe of Israel? See, here's the thing. By now, the tribes had undergone expansion and assimilation. The weaker tribes were being absorbed into the larger tribes. Simeon, for instance, was doomed to become part of Judah, eventually anyway, as their territory was literally like a round bullseye in the center of a target. They were the donut hole in the middle of the donut that was Judah. They were 100% surrounded. They had virtually nothing but desert wilderness for land. And had received a blessing from Jacob back in Egypt that was essentially a curse that they would be scattered among the tribes of Israel in time. And that's what was happening. But then there's the matter of Benjamin up here. Were they part of the ten northern tribes, as, in, as it was in Saul's day, or part of the one southern tribe, Judah? Well, see, Benjamin was a buffer state between the, 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 the northern and the southern tribal coalitions, and Benjamin's allegiance rocked back and forth from one side to the other. 
And you can be sure that among the many clans of Benjamin, there wasn't any consensus of which tribal coalition they ought to support or join. And be that as it may, as of this time, apparently Benjamin was an ally of Judah, probably because the king of Israel was from the tribe of Judah and it made political sense to side with the people who were in power. Well, we're not going to get into all the historical and theological debates over whether editors change the number totals somewhat. As a matter of fact, uh, the Septuagint says it was ten tribes and two tribes that were the division. The meaning and the intent remains the same. But for the sake of understanding what this division of the kingdom would mean as far as a new tribal alignment, we could say that really not much would change from the most ancient of times going back to when Joshua crossed over the Jordan River leading the wandering Israelites into their new home. Judah usually was allied with Benjamin. Simeon was dispersed, some going to Judah, the rest going to other tribal alliances that included all the other tribes. Even when David was made king, it was a constant strain on him to keep those ten northern tribes in line and as part of his twelve tribe nation. The sheer wealth of the nation that was doubled and doubled again, thanks to Solomon, kept the ten northern tribes reluctantly loyal to Solomon's monarchy because it benefited them. But was Solomon visibly aging, showing definite signs of political weakness, the time was ripe for all of these old jealousies to come spilling out. God was going to use this to achieve his purposes. More than once in his oracle, The prophet tells Jeroboam that the reason for the Lord giving these ten tribes to him is not for Jeroboam's worthiness, but for Solomon's unfaithfulness that this is all happening. Further, Jeroboam is not to become king over all of Israel, just the northern tribes. And that this is not to happen to Solomon directly but only after Solomon is deceased and his son is taken over. In words reminiscent of Nathan's oracle to David. Excuse me. The Lord tells Jeroboam that he will have an enduring dynasty of rulers over Israel if if he will walk in God's ways and obey his commandments. There's a couple of important differences about what was promised to David as to what was promised to Jeroboam. First, Jeroboam's obedience could bring many generations of a family dynasty after him, but it wasn't to be a forever dynasty. It was just enduring, meaning a long time but an indeterminate amount of time. Second is that while David would rule over a united nation of all 12 tribes called Israel, Jeroboam would only rule over but one part of a divided Israel, even though it was the larger portion. Now, let me take a moment 
to point out that especially from here forward, the term Israel has to be carefully placed in context or it can get terribly confusing. Especially at this time when there still exists a greater Israel that is David's and Solomon's kingdom, there is also in process a division of this greater kingdom in which one kingdom called Judah and another kingdom called Israel will result from it. But it will only be a few decades after this split until the Israel of the ten tribes is no longer called Israel but rather Ephraim. So from here forward on in the Bible, be on alert as to whether the text is speaking of this ten tribe coalition of Israel, separate from Judah, or the complete and whole tribe, or complete and whole Israel of twelve tribes. In chapter 12, we're going to read of the secession of the northern tribes from the Union. It was perhaps only two or three years after Solomon's death that it happened and it has never, think about this, never been united again since then. But right here in 1 Kings 11 God pronounces that this split of the kingdom and of David's dynasty ruling over but one part of the twelve tribes was only going to be for a time. It would not be forever. Eventually, an ancestor of David would again rule over all twelve tribes. And it would be in perpetuity. Hundreds of years later, the tribes were still split. The ten northern tribes had even been ejected from the land. Yet Ezekiel prophesied that someday this promised reunion would happen. But the conditions for it to happen seemed like pure fantasy for the people of his day. However, we have the awesome privilege of being in that generation of history to witness the healing process and reunification between Ephraim and Judah get underway. That's a topic for another time, not today. So in verse 40, we hear that Solomon tried to have Jeroboam executed. What is happening in this story is that we are essentially backtracking from around verse 40 back to verse 27. Remember back in verse 27 it said, Here is the reason he rebelled against the king. Solomon was building the Milo and closing the breach in the wall of the city of David, his father. So from verse 27 to verse 40, this is the story of why Jeroboam raised his hand against Solomon. Starting with verse 40 is what happened as a result of it. And the result was that Solomon tried to arrest and execute Yerovam, but he managed to escape to Egypt. The Pharaoh, when Jeroboam escaped, was now a fellow named Shishak. 
he was the first pharaoh of the 22nd dynasty. Siamun, the last pharaoh of the 21st dynasty, who had been Solomon's great ally, was now dead. Shishak had no love for Israel or for Solomon, and so he was quite willing to harbor this rebel, Jeroboam. Now it's important to grasp that Jeroboam had already disobeyed the Lord's commands to him. Thus he had sealed his fate with God. He was given specific instructions that he was not to try and unseat Solomon. But rather, the split of the kingdom wasn't to happen until Solomon's son was in power. This is in contrast to David, who was given knowledge that the kingdom would be his, but he refused to lay a hand on the demented King Saul, no matter how insanely and homicidally irrational the king behaved. Recall the several examples given when David could have easily disposed of King Saul and become ruler immediately. But he would not. Because he knew that this was not what the Lord would have him do. This was not the Lord's timing. But Jeroboam, well, he took the part of God's message that he liked. And he ignored the rest. He really enjoyed that part about becoming the king. But he just couldn't see the advantage of waiting for God's timing and doing it God's way in obedience. In fact, it was obvious that his intent was to rule over all of Israel if he could, not just the ten northern tribes, but whatever he was to rule over, he wanted it now. You know, I'm sad to say that too much of Christianity has done a similar thing when it comes to our salvation, our place in the kingdom of God, and our relationship with Israel. St. Paul forcefully, in his typically undiplomatic way, says in Romans 11 that for Gentiles who become believers to even think that now that we that that we are now somehow or another the new or replacement Israel, this is the worst of follies. Rather, we are, after all, just a grafted-in branch from a different tree altogether. That we would ever come to think that this matter of redemption is all about us, or that we're now supposed to function apart from the root of our faith and the biblical covenants that forms the soil that nourishes that root. This is a very slippery slope of error. Oh yes, Gentiles, we have been shown great favor by Jehovah. Yes, we have been given a salvation that was at first only Israel's. And yes, there would be for a time a refusal on Israel's part to take up the salvation in Messiah Yeshua. However, it was and remains our duty to demonstrate such unyielding faithfulness to our Lord, such undying love 
towards his Hebrew people that, that in a jealousy to acquire what we have, the Holy Spirit, they will see the light that is Christ, come back to God, and accept their Jewish Messiah. That's the plan. But instead, within a few decades after Yeshua's death, the church bishops erected a wall. And they said, no Jews are welcome. Unless, of course, they give up their kippahs and their talits and trade them for a ham sandwich. They constructed doctrines that made the Hebrew people God's unwanted stepchildren and Gentile believers the be-all, end-all of God's love for mankind. They did what Jeroboam did. They took the part of God's word they liked and that benefited Gentile believers and that gave us a wonderful holy status before God and discarded all the rest. And after centuries of these doctrines becoming ingrained and often unquestioned within our Christian institutions, it has had a terrible effect upon millions of believers and it's led to much bad doctrine being practiced. So now, among some of our largest denominations, Israel is the bad guys and the Palestinians are the good guys. The Gentile church is the head, Israel's the tail. The Torah is a relic, and the New Testament is essentially our entire Bible. Obedience to God's word is now condemned as legalism. The Sabbath is anything we want it to be. God's feasts have been replaced with man-made holidays based on ancient pagan celebrations. Many have taken the route of Jeroboam. But the good news is that today in our time we are seeing a growing movement of Gentile believers who are challenging these doctrines, rediscovering the Torah and our Hebrew faith roots. And like some of the kings that would follow Jeroboam, we are trying to knock down those high places that he had erected to suit his own agenda and to restore fellowship with our elder brothers and sisters in the faith, the Judahites, the Jewish people. Well, the final three verses ends the saga of Solomon. Here we find out that there was another and well-known historical document at one time called the Annals of Solomon where the record of his life and deeds were written in greater detail. No doubt most of what we have read in 1 Kings about Solomon was taken from that book. It is indeed a tragedy that it's been lost. Solomon reigned for 40 years and then died, meaning he was in his early 60s when he went to his grave. His father died in his early 70s, which was seen as a reasonable amount of time for a righteous man to live. For Solomon to live only 60 years or so says that all wasn't right. 
He was buried in the city of David, and his son Rehavam succeeded him, but not for long. Let's read the opening words of chapter 12, and we'll read it all next week. We're just going to read the first five verses of 1 Kings chapter 12. Rechavam went to Shechem, where all Israel had come to proclaim him king. And when Yarovam, the son of Nevat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from Shlomo, so Yarovam was living in Egypt, but they sent and summoned him. Yarovam and the whole community of Israel came and said to Rechavam, Your father laid a harsh yoke on us, but if you will lighten the harsh service we had to render your father and ease his heavy yoke that he put on us, we'll serve you. He said to them, Leave me alone for three days, then come back to me. So the people left. In many ways, this chapter tells the story of one of the greatest ongoing tragedies in Israel's history. The dissolution of the kingdom of Israel. The golden age was over. It had lasted a mere 80 years. And much of the blame falls at Solomon's son's feet, as we're going to find out. Rechavam immediately succeeded his father. There is no hint of controversy over his coronation. There is no record of others of his brothers or half-brothers contesting his right to the throne. All appears to have been an orderly and peaceful and dignified process. Rehoboam was no doubt a much younger man when he first assumed the throne of Israel than the 41 years of age that is typically quoted in the Bible manuscripts. He was probably more like 21, and 41 is a copyist error. If he was 41, that meant he was Solomon's first son, and he was born either immediately before or immediately upon Solomon's coronation. But since Rehoboam's mother was a foreigner, an Ammonite, and we're told that it was only in his older age, during a very steep and rapid descent into idolatry, that he started marrying foreign women by the scores. In fact, it was mentioned earlier that the Ammonites were chief among the women that he eventually married, and that this was an especially terrible thing. We're also told that his first wife was an Egyptian princess. So this couldn't have been her son. So there's little to prove and a lot to disprove that Rehavam was uh, was 41 when he became king. In fact, pretty soon, we're going to read in the narrative about he and his young friends he had grown up with choosing some harsh and immature words to speak to the people of the ten northern tribes and that would be the spark to set fire to the kingdom. When Solomon died and it was time for Rehoboam's coronation some of the leaders of the northern tribal coalition sent for Jeroboam to come back 
from his self-imposed exile in Egypt to prepare for what they had been planning for for a long time. To secede from the Union. And once again become their own ten-tribe kingdom. But what we'll soon see is that their determination to separate themselves led to also seceding from God's commandments and from his Torah and from his covenants and instead setting up an alternative religious system that pleased them. That's where we'll continue next time.